DNA. This is the new thing, right? I can pretty much blame everything on my DNA. If I, uh, if I don't look the way I want to look, if I don't act the way I want to act, I can blame that on my DNA. And we're starting to find out that there's a lot of truth to that. We can find out that no matter what I do, my DNA will to some degree dictate who I am and how I will act and what my attitudes will be. Well, let me tell you something about your spiritual DNA. Inside of every human heart is a longing for significance. Inside of every human heart is a desire to matter. To matter to somebody, to be a part of something, to have a purpose in this life, but not just a purpose in isolation. A purpose together with people. Everyone, everyone in this world who has ever been born has had a desire, whether they understand it or not, to know and to be known, to love and to be loved, to be significant, to live a life of significance. Now, what's my proof? I believe that the reason we have a desire, a longing for significance, is because the God of the universe created us in His image. And in His image, He created us such that we desire to matter to Him. Now, we don't always understand what that means, and we, we often get that confused. And part of our struggle as people separated from God and the desire is the desire to be God for ourselves and to find our significance in everything but our relationship with Him. But here's the thing. One of the most important parables in all of Scripture, one of the most famous ones is a story in which Jesus explains this idea. You know, Jesus was, uh, he probably wouldn't be very well respected today in some, in some circles. He, um, he was really, in our terms, in modern terms, I guess he was a pastor, maybe a, a traveling evangelist. You know, and people loved Jesus. I mean, the masses loved him, and they followed him everywhere he went. There's these great stories about how, you know, they're pressing up against him just to hear what he has to say, and he gets in a boat, and he sails to the other side, and they're all watching him sail to the other side, so that when he gets there, they're all waiting for him, and the masses love Jesus, which, of course, made the religious leaders a little skeptical, right? Here's this guy... And he's going around, and he's preaching this stuff, whatever he's preaching, and they didn't have the benefit of the internet and the you know, satellite television and all that, so they'd hear from someone who heard from someone who heard from someone what he said, and I'm sure sometimes the stories got messed up. Uh, and then they started hearing little bits and pieces about this son of man, son of God, and I and the Father are one, and they start figuring out that this guy is making some claim to be the Messiah, to be divine, and people are just soaking it in. And then it turns out people are... Maybe they're making up miracles to prove that this is who Jesus is. And they want to know, well, did you see the miracle yourself or did you just hear it from somebody? What was the real miracle? Well, maybe he didn't walk on water. Maybe it was just a sandbar. Nobody knew it was a sandbar. Or maybe it was a trick. And, you know, they did the same thing we do today. That's what I'm trying to say, okay? Jesus was a traveling evangelist and, and the religious leaders of his day were skeptical of who he was. And here, here became their number one grumbling they're number one muttering. In Luke 15, at the very beginning, it says that the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were grumbling among themselves. Now, they had to be careful, right? Because everybody loved this guy. 
And hey, maybe he could do miracles. If he can raise people from the dead, maybe he can do the other. So they were a little nervous, maybe, but they were grumbling to themselves to figure out what to do. And here was their complaint. This man eats with tax collectors and sinners. Now, we look at that and we go, well, that's kind of, you know, superficial, big deal. You know, he goes over to the house for dinner, right? Well, no, 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 no. These guys had a legitimate complaint in their culture and in their day. And here's what it was. Let me tell you what a tax collector was. Many of you probably already know, but a tax collector was not just, you know, the guy that collects your taxes. These were Jewish men who worked for the Roman government to collect taxes for Rome, which were usurious enough. And then the Roman government would say, as long as you get us our money, you can collect whatever you want. And if you... And if they won't pay you our money and your money, then we will bring the full force of the Roman government and authority against them. So these were scumbags. These were formal crooks, legalized criminals. So he hung out with these guys, right? Then there was another group, the sinners, right? Well, <laughs> that's everybody. Well, that's not what they meant. Sinners were people that were notorious People that everybody knew didn't care what the rules were, didn't care what the laws were. These were robbers. I mean, maybe today these would be mafia members. You know, maybe they'd be pornographers. Maybe they'd be, well, they really literally were robbers, adulterers, thieves. They were everybody that society had, had rejected and that really had rejected society. And then it says, well, he eats with these people. Well, now, this isn't just they had him over for the potluck, right? What this meant is that Jesus dwelt with these people. He didn't just go over to a house when invited and leave as quickly as he could. He dwelt among them. He, in some sense, recognized them and welcomed them into his life and into who he was. These people were his friends. And I'm telling you, we look back and we can look down our noses at these Pharisees, but I promise that if you had a pastor today who was known for hanging out with the kinds of people that this guy, Jesus, hung out with, there'd be some meetings. There'd be some phone calls. There'd be some emails to, ed- to, to elders. Well, this was the charge that Jesus faced behind his back, behind the scenes. And so he answered it. He answered it with three parables. The first two he told very quickly. Um, all three of them involved, all three of them involved uh, something very precious that someone to someone, and then they went to get it. But the first two he told very quickly about a lost sheep and a lost coin. But then the third story he developed. It's the story of the prodigal son. I want to read that for you. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of, the, of that prop, of property that is coming to me. And so he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a, a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a famine, a severe famine, arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. 
And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one would give him anything. But when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise, and I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and you and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, uh, what these things meant. I think he knew what they meant. And, his, and he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, and he's found. Now, I've read that story a thousand times, but let me tell you what, what is stunning to me when I think about that. Jesus, God decisively revealed on this planet with all the power and authority and wisdom and knowledge of the universe, the earthly representation of the invisible God who is everywhere all the time, knows all, sees all, and is sovereign over all, was asked a question. He was challenged by people who had no business even challenging him. And the question was, who are we to you? Who are we to you? And the implication was because what we thought was you gave us this set of rules a couple, you know, uh, 1,500 years ago, and those of us who obey those rules are like your right hand men. We're your princes and your kings, your nobility. And the rest of those people, well, they're, they're sinners destined for hell. They're unclean. They're filthy. They have no business near the Messiah. Only the princes and kings belong with him. The ones who have, by their own effort, drawn themselves close by obedience to his law. The question they were asking is, who are we to you, O God? Who are we to you, O man who claims to be the Messiah? And in, of all the things Jesus could have said... Of all the things the God of the universe could have said, he could have put a big graphic up in the sky and explained how he created the universe and why he was God. 
He could have done all these incredible things if he had wanted to. He could have done a big miracle in that moment and just said, okay, be quiet. But instead, he tells this story. And the story he picks is so simple, so personal, so intimate that anyone can understand it. He tells the story about a father and his two sons. Now, the story is always called the prodigal son, so we tend to think it's about this lost son who comes home and his father received him by, by... by his grace, and everything's hunky-dory. But we forget about the, the dutiful son. The one who was working in the field when the young son, the playboy, came home after he burned all his cash on, on prostitutes. Like, you know, the older son had a case, right? I'll bet there's people in this room that have had this conversation with their children. Maybe you were one of the children with, for whom the conversation was had when you were younger. Wait a minute. That deadbeat, we're bailing him out again. It's always a him, by the way. Um, Yeah, so, you know, this dutiful son had a case. He wasn't being a big, fat jerk. He was saying, wait a minute, I've been working in the fields all this time. Your son came to you, and he asked for his inheritance. Do you know what that meant back then? It meant, Father, I don't care if you live or die. I wish you were dead so I could get my money. And I'm just going to bet that he wasn't quite as good working in the fields as his older brother was either. So his father divided the inheritance and gave his son his portion, which he went out and immediately squandered, not in unwise investments, but he just went out and partied with it until it was gone in every way imaginable for himself. And here's the next thing that happens. This son, he looks down, he, gets, he ends up feeding pigs, right? Now that means a lot to the Jews. Right? Pigs were unclean. They weren't supposed to have anything to do with a pig. And now here this guy is wallowing with them in their slop and feeding it to them to the point that he wishes he was a pig. He wants their food. And then it says that the even deeper blow, this pagan pig farmer wouldn't even give me any of the pig food. In other words, this guy was not motivated by a sincere desire to be restored to his father and brother whom he had wronged. At this stage in this man's spiritual journey, he was starving to death and realized that he had done something foolish. So his motivation was to write this speech. Did you notice that? I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against God and before you, right? And then when he gets and he's walking down the road and and his father runs up to him and he goes, okay, pulls out the paper, Father, I have sinned against... And his father cuts him off in the middle of his speech. And he doesn't even know what to do. The kid's just standing there and the father's telling him to throw. He's all of a sudden, the kid's dressed like, you know, a king. And he's swept into this celebration that his father has for him. And the kid was not motivated because, again, he had come to this beautiful spiritual moment. And he said, I believe that someday the Messiah will come in the form of Jesus. And I receive him into my heart and I will now go back and repent before my father. That's not what he said. He said, I am starving to death and I'm an idiot. At least maybe I can go home and be one of my father's servants. So he took a step toward his father and he, 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 he ate his humble pie and he started walking home. And he's walking home, like I said, and he gets there and, he, and, and it says, this is what I love, but when he was still far off. What does that mean his father was doing? Watching. Waiting, looking, because he wanted him to come home. 
Now remember who we're talking about here. We're talking about God and you. We're talking about God and that guy on the corner asking for the money. We're talking about God and the jerk in your office. We're talking about God and the, and the guy that runs out on the soccer field at the under five soccer game. Pick the, pick the person that annoys you the most. That's what I'm saying. We're talking about God and those people. We're talking about God and the little kid that when you're flipping the channel, uh, you know, late at night and the World Vision ad comes on and you go by the little emaciated child with the big bloated stomach from parasites and the blonde hair from malnutrition and you fly by it because it's mortifying and you just think, gosh, that's not just him. If it was just him, I could help, but I can't get my mind around the fact that one million of them die every day. The prodigal son is about God and them. It's about God and and anyone in this world who has been separated from him, and that's everyone. So the father comes out and he greets his son who has made a very small step toward understanding what he's done. And he embraces him with grace and mercy and he throws a party to celebrate his return. But then, Matt comes along. Matt grew up in the church, man. I've been towing the line. Hey, I, I went to seminary. When, you know, I wanted to be a pastor when I was 15. I went to seminary right out of college. I've been a pastor. I didn't do all the stuff my friends were doing when they were doing it. I waited till later. Um, does that count? If you make it to your 18th birthday? No, you know, we grew up in the church. We're the dutiful brother. We've done it right, man. And doesn't the father see the inequity here? not fair bring me someone who's just a little they're, they're like me and they're a pretty responsible person they got their ducks in a row like me but maybe they just never received Jesus like I have and we'll just get to receive Jesus and then we're good to go because they were they were ready and they were they were worthy this story is not about a worthy person in fact, it's not about either one of them being worthy. So Jesus is talking to the Pharisees here, and he says, when he's talking to the older brother, and he says, hey, older brother, don't you understand? I love you as much as I love your younger brother. Everything that I have is yours. This is God talking. Everything I have is yours. Everything I have, everything in the universe is yours, my child. Always has been, always will be. But don't you understand, your brother was lost. He was dead. And now he's alive. End of story. No explanation. No, hey, I'll compensate you later. No, if he does it again, I will. No. Celebration. The heart of God toward his people. People matter to God. All of them. And let me tell you something. People are messy. People are messy like that sign is messy. We made that sign messy because that's really the way people are. They're not organized and clean and perfectly spaced. I think of all the people over the years that I've, I've, been, I've encountered. I think of, of people in a homeless shelter. You know what? They stink. They smell just so, so foul that you almost you can't stand it sometimes. 
I, I've sat in Bible studies with, with businessmen who are very wealthy and just, they, they would not get that their, wealth, that their wealth was a result of God's favor and God's grace. I, I've sat with people that, that uh, I preached sermons to people, all of whom came up after and patted me on the head and said how nice that was. And then I watched them file out the door back into the same lives that they had lived every week. And then I watched myself make a mess of my life as a pastor. Humiliate my wife. The thing I never thought I would do, the dutiful son. I made a mess that my wife had to clean up. My friends had to clean up. They had to loan me money. They had to loan me places. These guys had to take me in when I was a disaster. I'm still a disaster, but I'm, I'm a more fun disaster, though. You got to... And, and I'm telling you this because this is not one of these preachers that's going, well, you know, I'm a sinner, too. No, I mean it. Okay? Amen. <laughs> you be quiet. Um... I tell you this because what we're, about to, uh, the, what we're about to endeavor to do is going to be messy. And as you seek throughout this series, as, as we lay out for you uh, sort of the, what it means, the hands and the feet, the legs of a servant, and what that means practically speaking, what that means um, in mercy, in the church, in the world, and what it means for you, as we lay these things out through this series, the first thing I want to say is that people are messy. You're messy. Maybe you haven't dealt with your mess yet. People who need Christ are messy. People who have simple needs are messy. You know what? They do dumb things. There are people who need money because they did dumb things. There are people who need food because they can't manage their lives. But I tell you the story of the prodigal son today to say somehow God in his mercy and grace and wisdom looks in above through that and redeems them. He just loves them. And he wants them to come home. I want to close with a number. Does anybody know what that number might be? Should we round it up to seven billion or should we round it down to six and a half billion? You know what that is? That's the population of the world as of this morning. Now, I don't know how they figure that out. I'm sure it's changed. It's probably a ballpark, but 6,777,963,338. God doesn't round. There's no portion of them that don't matter. There's no group of a million or a hundred thousand or a hundred or ten. There's no one family. There's no one person that God doesn't know and count. Thousands of them will die today. Thousands will be born. Thousands, maybe millions, will die, be separated, for, separated from God. Never having heard of Him, never having known Him. There are people in that number, maybe uh, 6,777,963,334. Maybe that person will die today because he needed a shot that you and I go to the, to the doctor to get every year before school, and he just couldn't get it. There's somebody in there who sits in your office and 
needs Jesus and doesn't think he does. And every time you try to figure out how to do that, it doesn't work. You get embarrassed. He knows every one of them. And he doesn't round. And we're going to talk about every one of them and what it means to reach them for these next five weeks. So I leave you with this. Take it home with you if you've forgotten everything else I said. People matter to God. Every one of them. And they should matter to us. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we sit here a minute, minuscule, microscopic portion of that number up on that screen. Yet, by, by your grace and your mercy, you have given those who trust in you access to this universe, and you have promised us that all of it is ours. You have given us your Savior, your Son, who told us this story about a father and his children. Imprint on our hearts, Father, that people matter to you, and they must matter to us. In Jesus' name, amen.